Welcome to At The Counter, the show that takes the conversations had at the counter of your local comic book store and brings them to the internet. And for the record, we're, we're sorry. sorry. I'm Marcus Antea. And I'm Christian Kenty. We're coming to you from the Frugal Dutchman, a kind of nerdvana here in lovely Ridgeway, Ontario. It's a comic book, action figure, gaming, antique, and all-around nifty store. I'm a random customer who's a big nerd from way back. And I'm the store owner. And we've been having these conversations for years with other people dropping in and out to add points, and we've decided to share them with you. So take a trip with us down the nerdy rabbit hole to overhear the conversations that happen at, at the, the counter. counter. So as everybody knows, we get all kinds of nerdy topics and questions, and so we're going to pull one up here and do the show today. So Christian, what's our topic for the day? So the infinite nerdy question, the, the original nerdy question, if you will. Is the book always better than the movie? Yes. Well, that was a quick show, everybody. No. <laughs> but is it is it always better than the movie? Because there are specific examples that I can say that in each direction for myself. But um, everybody is going to have a different opinion about that. But I think we would have to cite some specific examples in order to kind of make determinations on that. And uh, I'll add another twist to it. Um, there was a there was a um, trend in the seventies uh, to create a book after the movie came out. Yeah. So is that book better than the movie as well? But is the book written better than the source material? So okay, so we have some some uh, places to go with this. So, Christian, what's your first uh, foray into this? Well, I think I think the first thing to get out of the way is Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is the is the original, in my opinion, where this question usually comes from, because it would have been impossible for both to be the same, right? Very much so. Yeah. Absolutely impossible without it being an, a cinematic universe of its own. But I don't know that there's enough content there for that many movies to exist either and not only that the movies would be <clears throat> incredibly boring absolutely yeah there and if you're not into the material as it is it's a hard watch it's tough it's an if even you harder can't buy into it right an and even, yeah. and i agree the first time i read it and i mean i'm only 31 right and or i'm 32 now <laughs> I'm 32, and so the first time I read it was years and years and years after it came out, decades after it originally was written. And I had seen the first couple movies first and got so jazzed about it that I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this thing. And then you get this book that puts the Bible to shame in size. <laughs> and you go, oh, God, what am I getting myself into? Because it's, it's good, but you have to... Invest yourself in the content. Well, I'll right, tell you the flavor. I'll tell you, I read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings when I was in probably grade eight. So we're talking back in the early eighties, or yeah, early eighties. Um, and I devoured it, absolutely devoured it. Every inch, every word of it, I loved. I went all over it. I, I, you know, read it back to cover and front and back, whole nine yards. I knew it inside out and backwards. And then when the movies were coming out, I said, ooh, maybe I'll refresh myself on the source material. And I grabbed the book, and I couldn't even get through The Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. I'm like, this is the most boring thing I have ever read in my entire <laughs> life. Tolkien doesn't say in a sentence what he can say in a paragraph and doesn't say in a paragraph what he can say in a chapter. So uh, for all the Tolkien fans who are now shutting off the podcast, I apologize. Uh, but that is my personal feeling, and I've never had uh, any reason to dispute that. Well, and, and I can sit on that and say that I do fully enjoy the experience of reading it, of reading anything of Tolkien's. I've not really found anything I'm really dissatisfied with, but it, it is a chore to read, right? And that's that's tough, right? And especially for, I mean... My lifestyle is when I have time to read things is not great for things that are dry. <laughs> yeah, will, will induce comas. So, and, and any book you have to work up the courage and energy and gumption to read isn't something that yeah. I'm. I, I will uh, again annoy more people. I'll roll it back to the uh, Wheel of Time, the Robert Jordan. Mm. Absolutely have 
no time for that book or that series. I got to about the seventh book and then I just went, they had a recap book that like every one of his inch and two inch, three inch thick books are a week's worth of time. And I'm like, okay, I, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I have the attention span for comic books. That's <laughs> I've always had a short attention span. And so to have to dedicate that kind of time is really, it's really laborsome. I enjoy when I do. Um, and when I come out the other end, of, you know, and I can slap the back of a book closed and be like, yes, I completed this thing and I, I devoured it. And I'm selective about what I invest my reading time in. Um, so that happens nine times out of 10. I'll be happy with what I read through, but Again, the there's not a lot of revisiting to a Lord of the Rings book to me, and and everybody will hang me out for that. There's a lot of people that will hang me out for that one because, oh my gosh, it's such good content. It is, but I can't do it twice. <laughs> no, you can't. And uh, if you want to see where the films and the books get weird, look at The Hobbit. Yeah, The Hobbit should have been a single movie. It didn't need to be three movies. Yeah, and a matter of fact, they jammed, uh, was it part of the Similarian in there? or uh, oh, A specific yeah, war was, that they had. another arc in there that, that didn't, didn't appear in the there. book at all, didn't need to be there. They just wanted to stretch it out to three movies to yeah. gain as much money as possible. So in that case, the book is considerably better yeah. than the movie. Uh, and for as far as Lord of the Rings goes, I believe the movie's better than the book because it condenses the boring parts. I mean, still, it's a long walk off to drop something off the edge of a pier. Like it's a very the whole book's a very long walk. Yeah. Well, and and I'll agree that the the movies can be equally cumbersome as a watch as well. Yes, right. It's, Especially if you do the special editions. It's like a, a deep dive board game. You really have to find the people that are going to watch that with you or commit yourself to watching it alone. Because even on your regular cut, run times are two and a half, three hours long. And then you're looking at director's cuts and special editions that are three and a half to four sometimes. You're looking at three movies that amount to 12, 13 hours of film. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's something that's not something you can sit and watch. That's yeah. something that can be on while That to me is background movie. Background yeah. movie, yeah, something going on. Uh, the same reason I'm uh, somewhat ashamed to say I still haven't watched the new uh, Justice League cuz I just don't have 4 hours to commit I to haven't sitting jumped and on watching. It either, yeah. So, but anyways, um, okay, Lord of the Rings, we've decided half and half. Movies are better than the books for Lord of the Rings, books better than the movies for The Hobbit. Okay. Um, the one that everybody's going to want to talk about and have the most up and down screaming about is, of course, the Harry Potter series. Uh, are the books better than the movies? Now, I can't speak to this one because I've seen the movies. I haven't read the books. And again, I have a, a attention span issue, and those are hefty reads. Well, I'll tell you, I'm... Uh, I, you you know, and some of our listeners will know, I am a voracious reader. I read exceedingly fast when I like what I'm reading. Um, and I was able to read book seven of Harry Potter in about three and a half or so hours. Like, I powered through yeah. it. Um, and the books are better than the movies because there's more meat to them. Yeah. But they translated what was in the books into the movies very, very well. My problem comes, and I have this problem with movies, is when they change something in the book that doesn't need to be changed. Um, it, it sort of irritates me. Uh, I'll give an example. When in the first movie where they fall into the uh, uh, to the venomous tentaculus or tentacular, the plant okay. that's messing them all around, uh, they're all trapped and screaming, and she says, "Just go, go still," and they fall through to the bottom. In the book, they said it reacts to fire. And Ron looks at Hermione and says, well, start a fire. Because earlier in the book, she lit Snape's cloak on fire to stop him from apparently jinxing Harry's broom and blah, blah, blah. So it's been established in the book that she can make fire. And so as they're trapped, it says, how do we get out of here? Hermione says, the effect, well, it doesn't like sunlight, it doesn't like this, and it doesn't like fire. He goes, well, then make fire. She goes, I, I don't have any matches. And Ron screams at her, are you, are you a witch or what? <laughs> and she goes, oh, 
Yeah, because she's Muggleborn. She forgot that she's a witch. <laughs> she was looking for a lighter or matches. Yeah. And then she does and they get out and everything's fine. Yeah. Um, they changed that in the movie for no particular reason that I can understand or think of. Like, yeah. it doesn't make sense why they would change it. Oh, that's a rich piece of... of it's text, great dialogue. Right? It's yeah. great text. It makes sense. And they just change it for no And that's no character reason. development, too. Yeah, I mean, that's, exactly. That's big to develop that part of Hermione. Because I think they do ignore that a lot in that series, when, when you're looking at the movies especially. Right, is they make a bigger deal out of it in like the first one. Yeah. But then for the rest of the you know, of her education, it doesn't really come up. <laughs> it only comes up in uh, Prisoner See, of Azkaban. Yeah, there's a, there's an occasional slur here and then. Yeah, right? there's the, the, there's the M the M word pops yeah. up from uh, and Draco makes a big deal out of it. But other than that, in the books it's a little more they keep throwing that she's muggle born at her and, and that kind of stuff. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff in those books. Like now, when you get to the last couple of movies, I get it. Those books are two inches thick. You can't do like you could even do a single movie for book seven, and they still cut out about eighty percent of the plot lines. There was a lot of wrap-up stuff that could have been done that wasn't. Um, so, in the case of richness of world, I think the book always wins because you get the inner monologues of the characters. Uh, you get their motivations. You get a lot more meat to sink your teeth into. Um, however, the movies are much more accessible to a lot more people, and they're easy and bubblegum, and you like them. Well, uh, there's there's an interesting question because we're we're talking about series a lot. There's there's not a whole lot of instances I think that'll come up where there's one of something. I, I mean, you could get into Scott Pilgrim. You could get into a few other things like that where there's a one-off. But most of these revolve around series. Right, because a book series is successful, they want to make a movie series out of it. Is there a case in the Harry Potter series where you think that the movie actually outplayed the book? Um, I'm going to say yes, uh, and it's only the first one, with the exception of the problem I had. Because the first book is so thin yep. compared to the rest of the books, and because uh, it was her first shot at writing it, and it like it needed... You, you obviously watched her grow as an author yeah. as Harry grew um, the movie does a better job of telling the story than the book does in the book the first 10 chapters are not quite Tolkien dry but they're dry like yeah. I usually skip those chapters when I reread the books because I'm like yeah 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 his life sucks his cousin's a jerk and his uncle's a d-bag okay oh well let's go on with it now oh, look you're a wizard Harry and uh, so there you go. Uh, we're into the story. But uh, they did a much better job of it translating it on the, uh, in the movie than they did in the book. But after that, it gets progressively worse due to the time constraints and just the way people watch movies. You have to cut out a lot of those external well, slides. And I think the first movie especially does a really good job of discovery, right? Because you have... When you rewatch them, you kind of overlook the fact, of course, it's Harry Potter, he's a wizard, right? But you got to remember that this is a kid who's never understood magic, and it's always been around him, but he's never been able to, you know, kind of identify with it or connect with it, and his world turns upside down within a few days, right? And, you know, a couple of quick scenarios, and suddenly he's off to the school. And, you know, th this is an overwhelming experience for a kid of that age. Right? Oh, absolutely. I um, mean, and I think the movies do a really good job of painting that picture when he walks down the alley and, you know, just gazing in awe as I remember that I'm on a microphone and nobody can see me looking around the room. <laughs> but uh, yeah, know, just walking just the, down the look in his face, and I, I think the you know there was some really good casting involved in that as well. There was. It was a very very good uh, movie casting. Everything was rent really really well as far as finding the right people. Not quite as good as Marvel. But I, I would agree. Casting That's for Harry Potter, it's kind of hard to live up. Yeah. Well, it's also a predecessor too. Of course. So, and the benefit <clears throat> for the movie, which most benefit from, is that the source material had been out for quite a while. Yeah. It was when the books and the movie started catching up to each other that that falls away a little bit. Because you're starting to run those two concurrently, and you're writing a book 
with the idea of how does this translate yeah right and so there's a cause a cause and effect thing happening there okay let me ask you a question then is there a movie that was probably the most faithful to the book that you know i've got one and it's going to be right out of left field Movie that's really give me yours. So I, I got a second on this one because you you blindsided me with that. That's a <laughs> well, that's the, that's the idea. <laughs> um, mine is the original 1979 movie Mash, not the television show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The book, the movie. Because I've read all the books. I collected them because I'm a huge Mash fan. I have been for decades and decades of my life it's a wonderful series it's a wonderful series and it's on disney plus so i've been watching my way through it again i just did the rewatch through that a couple months ago um however if you've read the book the book of course does get into more detail and more thought processes because that's what books do however as far as out loud dialogue scenarios and uh and things that happen it is probably the best movie adaptation of a book for staying tight to the source material Mm -hmm. that I've ever seen. Everything else takes liberties, they change costumes, they change powers, they do whatever. Everything's slightly different or because it looks better on camera. MASH was almost dead on. If you read the book at the same time as you watch the movie, you will have pretty much the exact dialogue, exactly what happened, Frank and Hot Lips, the whole end, you know, one of the most famous examples of that is um, <clears throat> Frank, uh, Frank goes nuts after Hawkeye goads him and beats him up and then he goes crazy and they send him home on a psych discharge. Mm-hmm. And Duke says, hey, if I, uh, if I get into Hot Lips and punch out Hawkeye, can I go home too? That was word for word what was in the book. They, they took the, the, they took what they had and really tried to be good with it. And then it was because it was successful, they could transition into the television mm-hmm. show, of which there was only one person who went from the movie to the TV show, mm-hmm. and that's Gary Berghoff. Yep. yep, good old Radar <laughs> O'Reilly, which we had an earlier discussion about yeah. here off camera, off uh, microphone, which we might bring in <laughs> at another time. As a matter of fact, we'll bring it in on a one shot. Yep. So. Uh, I don't know that I have a specific example of a book shining into film that easily, or even into television. Like, there's always liberties you take, and and part of it is, like you had mentioned before, you when when an author is writing a book, you have to do certain things in structure to make the structure of a book flow that work differently than I think um, for literature than it does for film. Right, so film carries its own weight in in visual acuity and and things that carry you along with it that you have to force into somebody's brain when you're writing. <clears throat> so I think, in most cases, I'd be very disappointed to see too many films that hold a hundred percent to their book because it's drivel. It's it's just too much happening that well, doesn't there's... that's not necessary because you're you're descriptive in in ways that you don't always need to be and and there's things that you have to explain out that are that are givens in situations and that you can see that you don't have to imagine and and so there's a lot that bogs that down. Um, I agree because in the I'm not saying staying uh, it, it's not writing or seeing every single piece of what happens in the book because a lot of the descriptors and stuff get translated into sets and locations. You can see that stuff. Um, The problem I have is where they just take the same names as the people and do a completely different something. Nothing even barely related to the book. And I'll give you an example. Uh, James Bond. The original mm. books uh, from Russia with Love okay. and For Your Eyes Only and The Spy Who Loved Me, the books bear almost no relation to the movies. No. There's some, there's some uh, holdover for names and basic situations, but even the description of James Bond is completely <coughs> different than what we had until we hit Daniel Craig. No. Daniel Craig is closer to what the book describes, yeah. but... And, and, and as a matter of fact, they went really far out of the way when they did Casino Royale to get back to the source material and use the source material mm-hmm. because Bond became a parody of itself almost immediately. Yeah. So the books were source material in the same way 
Axis and Allies uses the source material of Risk. Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't... It, it sort of bears a vague resemblance, board-wise, but the game, the game is completely different. different. So, if you're talking that Bond's probably one of the worst ones until recently. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so it became, like I said, it became a parody of itself and spawned parodies upon parodies. Like, Austin Powers is obviously a parody of yep. that. Um, and one of my favorites, In Light Flint and Our Man Flint, which was a parody, but they played it dead straight. It's James Coburn as an international man of mystery <clears throat> who can do anything that he needs to do, from ballet dancing to finding the taste of a bouillabaisse soup that he could, nope, there's not enough garlic in that one. It's the wrong one. It goes to a different one. Uh, he talks to dolphins in one of the movies because he's training them and <laughs> learning how to speak. Like, but everything is done, not unlike Austin Powers, where they're playing it for camp, these ones are playing dead square. Yeah. Like, they're playing it as this is real life, even though there's no way. It's completely farcical. And that's love, where Austin Powers took a lot of its inspiration from. I love how when you get into, like, Naked Gun, too, it's, it's very, and, and Leslie Nielsen was always really good at that, is you totally buy into the fact that he <laughs> buys into everything that he's doing while everybody around him is like, for real? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, see, but that's, but that's what makes it such a perfect character as well. Frank and, and Frank Drebin is, is one of those. Yeah. Yes, but uh, uh, Flint is is that one step further. It's playing it like a dead square spy movie. There's no, yeah. there's nothing that people are looking around going, well, that's not possible. Like, how is that happening? Yeah. You know, like you do in in Naked Gun yeah. or Police Squad or Austin Powers. It's played dead straight. And if you haven't seen them, I'll lend them to you because they're amazing. Um, and funny as hell. They're just awesome. 60s perfection in part <clears throat> so of a movie. I've got an interesting example in mind, and I'm curious if you can come up with another one. Uh, because this actually plays both sides of the coin. In more recent history, there's one film that I enjoyed just as much as the book, but they're completely different. Okay. All right, Ready Player One. Oh, okay. Is a great example of it because although the overall structure of what's <laughs> happening start to finish is there for both, and and you know with transparency, I watched the film before I read the book, and I love the film so much that I had to read the book, and I love when I can have an experience like that, even though I know most of the time I'm setting myself up for disappointment, but <laughs> in this case, it was it walked you through this setup. Um, knowing the structure of what what the plot line is, start to finish, and the structure of this game and contest and all that, but the points they use to get you from one point to the to another are completely different, completely different. They're they're impossible to put side by side because they're two very different films. It's it's almost like you've put two pieces together side by side, given two people the liberty to do whatever they want with this plot line you yeah. just have to get from a to b take whatever path you want it's like a D, &D right? game exactly right but it played mm. so well on both and i thoroughly enjoyed both for everything that like there wasn't a part of any either of them that i was like oh my gosh how could they have done that this was better it was just two very perfect things on their own. Well, I'll, I'll give you a few examples of that that the i can Sharon come up with the top of my head uh do androids dream of electric sheep and Blade Runner, they're both amazing. Blade Runner is a very good example. Of that, um, yeah. But they are—they have really almost nothing to do with each other. Yeah. Like almost literally nothing yeah. other than the base concept of a concept of a concept. Yeah. Like it's the the replicants was part of it, but there was nothing else in common. But it's based off the yeah. source material. Um, another one I'll give you that uh, I'll be with you on the same thing. I love the movie, love the book didn't really care that they weren't even kind of remotely similar and that was Ender's Game. Mm. Ender's Game is a phenomenal model, model and it was put out back in the 80s. Like it's been around for a long time. I, I actually find it hard to believe it took them that long to make it into a film. Because the reason it, I think it is... The timing is, of it was, was available. I think it's the same reason that they've never done a decent Flash movie until recently. The technology wasn't there to be able to do all the battle room scenes and all the stuff in space. 
Uh, and there was one more. Oh, one more that uh, I will come up with. And again, we're going way off in left field in this one. And that one is Hudson Hawk. Hudson Hawk is a movie with Bruce Willis about, it's a heist movie. Uh, it's silly. It's over the top. It's crazy weird. A phenomenal movie. It, it might be one of my top five, maybe top three movies of all time that aren't science fiction. Um, that being said, somebody did a novel adaptation of the movie, like we were talking about before. That It's not a source material. The movie's the source material for the book instead of the other way around. And it hits all the same plot points, but it's much darker, much more grittier, and really, really good. And the book is amazing. Oh, and Lovejoy. Lovejoy is another one, too. Uh, Lovejoy was a television series um, in the, at the BBC about an antiques dealer who's kind of grubby down in his luck, but everyone wants him because he's really, really good, but he can never make any money and so on and so forth, uh, by, uh, based on a series of books by Jonathan Gash. And in the first season of Lovejoy, they used the plot lines from the books. The TV show is much lighter, much more fun. Not comedy, but there's a few smiles and chuckles. It's, it's a drama, but it's not a drama. But the books are super dark. And murder, mayhem, the whole nine yards. Um, both are really amazing in their own rights, but they don't translate very, very well. The television show, obviously, much like MASH, went off and did its own you know, plot lines and had nothing to do with the original source other than carrying the people forward. Well, and I, th I think that's when you get to... Sorry, I'll come back around on that. Now we see so much going into film, and, and Marvel's made it a thing where source material can turn to film and you can do series and, and really hold your own in that. And I think Marvel is the perfect... You know, platform for that because they're doing a visual comic book when they put out a movie, and and they really do run that way. Even their TV series did that. But when you when when your main jump was from book to film, and then like Mash did the the jump book to film to television. As soon as you hit television, you know you've got one season most of the time of good material already in place and then you have to build on that yeah. now there, there's tons of opportunity that or, or tons of examples where people have done that poorly right it happens there's a lot of bad television out there <laughs> right and it's gotten to a point where some of it's just so bad it, you got to watch it it's like it's like a train wreck you just can't look away um and some of it's just like why do i even have this on but then there's cases like mash again book and movie two perfect things on their own they could have called it quits there and made a really beautiful thing and just been happy with it but they stretched their neck out and said well we're going to make this a television program and you can see the the source material in season one is very very strong and relatable back to the source material but they managed to carry i mean they did the impossible they made a three-year conflict last what 11 11 seasons 11 seasons yeah <laughs> Yeah, Without when, making it feel like it was drawn out. Exactly. Because they did a very good job of being vague about time scales and, and where things fall into continuity and stuff like that. They didn't get fussed up about that, right? It was, this is, you know, it, it's sitcom, right? So this is what happens this week. In the same way that when you watch Seinfeld, you're not worried about, is this 1989 or 1990 in the continuity? It doesn't matter. It's what's happening right now. Right. <laughs> right. And, it, you know, it's, it's funny no matter what. And the only thing that really ties you down to any sort of events are major story points like changes in character, such as when Henry left and, and you know, Radar goes home and, and all these sorts of things. And, you know, the rise of Klinger, as I like to call it. <laughs> all these sorts of things. Um, but I don't know that that happens with very many TV shows. Because no. you run out of source material and you're grabbing at, okay, we had really good ratings and now we have to produce. And that desperation, you can smell it on a show half the time. And that's, I find that specific to uh, war-based television. Okay. I can think of a half a dozen titles that are war-based, like China Beach. There's only so long you can go before the conflict was over and then you have to figure something out, right? In zeros. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, that's a bad example. <laughs> okay. Uh, you have something like uh, Hogan's Heroes or McHale's Navy, yeah. which 
in the late 60s, early 70s, first of all, <laughs> super racist. Oh, just yeah. For the record. <laughs> There's no unequivocal. That's super racist. Yeah. Now, if, if every, you have a light constitution, you should never watch Never it. watch any of those. <laughs> but somehow they took a war that was bloody, horrible, awful, and they made comedies out of them. Yeah. Like, could you imagine in today's day and age going, look, okay, here's the pitch. There's a bunch of prisoners of war in a Nazi camp, and they keep screwing with the Nazis, and they running a resistance out of that. Like, first of all, just the N-word, boom, Nazis, we're out. <laughs> no, we don't do anything with Nazis. No way. Yeah. But, like, the fact that they get got that over across the censors, they got that across, and was incredibly successful. Like, these things went three, four, five seasons each. I mean, Hogan's Heroes went six seasons. I think, yeah. I think and it's, it, like, I own all of them because my grandfather was a dead ringer for John Banner, who played Schultz. And I watched it with him when we were children. He was from Germany and Austria uh, and managed to escape during and after the war. But he would watch it and he would smile because the Germans always took it in the ear. And that was <coughs> Werner von Klemperer, who was uh, Colonel Klink. He said, I will play this part, but Klink never wins. Yeah, The Germans never are successful. And that was the only... The only way the, the the show was successful was because it was funny without any of the horror. And everybody lived through that horror. They don't want to live through it again, but the comedy they can do. Yeah. But then you look at shows like um, Camp X, which was a CBC show. That one I don't know. Uh, Camp X was actually a phenomenal show. Um, for those who don't know, Camp X was a British secret uh, SAS uh, training camp that was in Aurelia. Okay. Uh, in Aurelia or Oshawa. I can't, maybe it was Oshawa. Anyways, in Canada, other side of Toronto, and they trained spies. And then the spies were dropped into Europe to do sabotage, <clears throat> to do intelligence gathering, da 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 da. And one of the interesting things they did is they had a, they found a synesthete and trained him up to go in and a synesthete is someone whose senses are cross-wired he hears sounds as color he can uh, see color as taste and has a completely and utterly eidetic memory so if he sees it he can regurgitate all of it at once so he's the perfect spy but of course being a synesthete and having all those overwhelming um overwhelming uh, uh input crossing over and confusing him uh, he would probably be on the autistic scale is what we'd call it today. Um, he had zero social skills yeah. because he just he can't handle that much input. Yeah. Um, and it went, I think, three seasons, and that was about as much as they were going to get out of it. Um, mm -hmm. It is a phenomenal show, not a comedy in any way, stretch, or form. It is a brutal war film and amazing, mm -hmm. absolutely amazing show. I fell in love with it. We watched it just on a whim because we knew about the Camp X in, in Oshawa and wanted to see what they were going to do with it. They were faithful to it. They were respectful to it. And very, very real, gritty, and really amazing. So if you haven't seen that one, check that one out because that's, that's killer as well. Just a great show. So there's, there's an interesting... You're starting to talk about Canadian shows and, and things like that. Is there a Canadian show that stands out to you as so well done it outshines its American counterpart and what's the what's the crossover example I guess because there's a couple of Canadian shows that I know I really enjoy and obviously I'm slighted to that because we're Canadian but um, these are shows that I wouldn't hesitate to offer up to our you know to friends I have that are American as well okay well it would also depend on uh, what you mean by outshining like that's that is are just there, fundamentally better oh, than its American counterpart. But there is no American counterpart for most of our shows. This this is also true. This, you know, like if you want to talk true, yeah. an amazing show, uh, Murdoch Mysteries. Yes, there's no counterpart in See, the states. And that's that's the first one that came to my head, and I, I was struggling with the same thing. I'm like, what stands up to that? And the closest thing you can even relate it to is something in the nature of CSI. But mm -hmm. it's not period enough for it, and so it kind of falls flat on comparison. 
because they are two very very different and, and i enjoy csi as a show i i liked it when it was on it it filled a gap but comparatively they don't stand on the same footing either i've got one that technically counts um because it was completely shot in toronto Okay. It's an American production, but it was totally shot in Toronto. And there is a counterpart that is good, just not as good. Okay. And that is Warehouse 13. Oh, I haven't watched that. Oh, you haven't? Oh, no. it's amazing. It's, it's one of my favorites. As a matter of fact, I got a story that I'll tell you in a minute. Anyways, uh, Warehouse 13 comes out of um, the librarian movies. Have you ever seen those? No. Oh, I'm going to have to get you caught up on a lot of stuff. I know. <laughs> um, Noah Wiley uh, did three movies for TNT back in the 90s called The Librarian. Uh, the Librarian and Judas Chalice, The Librarian and The Spear of Destiny, and one more that I'm blanking on. Um, and he's basically someone who's got several, like, 10 or 12 PhDs. He's a professional student. He just soaks in knowledge and the metropolitan library offers him a job now his job is now to go out in the field and procure relics that shouldn't be out in the world because they have powers and they make people do things it belongs and in a museum exactly but it belong <laughs> it belongs locked up yeah. in the library <clears throat> and when you see that <coughs> you see things like Noah's Ark is in the library, and the Spear of Destiny, and, uh, you know, just these major things that couldn't possibly live under the Metropolitan Library. It's in a pocket dimension. Well, that translates into Warehouse 13, which is very similar to objects in everyday life become imbued due to special circumstances and they become imbued with a power like uh, Harriet Tubman's thimble when you put the thimble on you can look like anybody else to hide and it became imbued that way due to her work on the Underground Railroad um, I'm just trying to think but anyways there's hundreds and thousands and thousands of these artifacts and what Warehouse 13 uh, agents do they're a branch of the Secret Service they go out into the world, uh, snag it, bag it, and tag it. They get it. They put it in um, goo or these special bags that will neutralize their effects and stop them from working and get them back to the warehouse where they can be shelved, cataloged, and kept safe. Uh, Artie, who's the main character, uh, one of the main characters, calls it uh, America's Attic. He said, the Smithsonian copied us. And this warehouse <laughs> is massive. It is semi... Um, it is semi-sentient. Like, there's a lot of magical stuff locked up in here to keep it from breaking havoc in the rest of the world. But it went five seasons. Well, four and a half, really. And was an amazing show. Probably, they had two finales. The second last one was the action finale for all those people who liked the action part. And then the finale was kind of a clip show, except all the clips they showed were stuff that had never been seen before. They were all brand new shot, but it worked like a clip show. Hmm. But what it did was it gave you closure on, on all the characters. And there's a, there's a sequence where Arnie goes, Artie goes through the warehouse and just like screaming at the warehouse and yelling at it in as it's alive. And it's one of the most gut-wrenching, powerful, amazing soliloquies I've ever heard. And it's in a crappy science fiction TV show. But, and here's where it comes <coughs> back, after Warehouse 13 shut down with the, with the success of that, TNT opened up the librarians. And the librarians ran for three, maybe four seasons. They pulled the same sort of thing. A bunch of people that qualified to be the librarian, they pulled them together, made them trainees, and sent them out as a group into the world. So it was kind of a, it was very similar to Warehouse 13. But Warehouse 13 was definitely the superior product. Okay. And 
and again, I'm going to take credit for it because I have friends that worked on the show. It was shot in Canada, even though it was American production. So our level was a little higher than the librarians. I, I love catching things like that as a as a Canadian who lived in <laughs> Toronto for a short period of time. There's a few that you know, and always check Americans who are listening. Always check if you think something is set in New York City. Guess what? <laughs> it was probably shot in Toronto because it's half the price. Yeah. <laughs> and hilariously, the, uh, the best example I have of it is. Uh, the show Suits. Yep. Um, it was completely shot in Toronto. All the interiors, exteriors were all done there, which I find really hilarious because I know a lot of a lot of American shows will shoot in Toronto for interiors, but they shot all the exteriors in Toronto too because you can see Bay Street, which is a fairly <laughs> iconic place, and there's a couple of upward angle shots that I think they may need to have fired the cinematographer for because they had the CN Tower in the yeah. background. Yeah. And I'm like, if there's one piece of monument that's iconically Canadian, it's that tower. Well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> g- I'll give you two good examples. One was uh, Rumble in the Bronx, which was a Jackie Chan movie yeah. set in the Bronx. Yeah. Which was shot in Vancouver, yeah. and they didn't even care. Nope. They showed didn't matter. They showed like wide shots of the city with mountains behind them, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh no, we're in the Bronx." I'm like, "Where the hell are the mountains He's outside the of the Bronx?" Bronx? Yeah. Like that doesn't make any sense. But probably the best one that I ever saw. Well, there's two of them really. Um, both were shot in Canada, obviously. Uh, one was Kung Fu: The Legend Continues. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Uh, it was Kung Fu was a. Oh, I've seen Kung Fu. Kung I Fu, seen the movie, but the Legend but yeah. Continues was a TV show. <clears throat> oh, okay. And it was all shot in Canada, but uh, everybody knows that when you send out ca- uh, location scouts, they see this would be great for this scene, this would be great for that scene, this would be great for that scene, and then they got to fit everything else. They in all the fit it all yeah. together. The guy walks in. Walks across the entryway and uh, and uh, the the grand hallway start of the science center. Walks out onto a floor at the ROM and goes down an escalator and exits the escalator at the AGO. <coughs> I'm like, that's some pretty cool wormhole technology, yeah. which you would never know unless you knew all those places. Well, again, and that's that's the thing. These are these are shows that are being shot for American eyes. Yeah. And I apologize in advance, but as much as everybody else in the world is supposed to know what the States looks like, most Americans don't know what anything outside their own country is when it comes to detail like that. So they won't be able to point it out. One of the funniest ones I ever saw was a movie called PCU, and it was supposed to try and be like a 90s version of the Animal House. Not a great movie. It's fun, but whatever. Uh, The point is the entire student body is trying to kill this prefrosh because he's managed to you know, anger the entire student body because it's all about being politically correct. It's a politically correct university. So it's basically he's done whatever he's done to piss off every single group that could be, and they're literally chasing him, the entire student body, trying to kill him. And he runs across a quad at U of T, uh, down a hallway and down a set of stairs at a cafeteria at Humber North, uh, out through part of York University, through the iconic arch at Ryerson and then back on U of T to a ground where he gets, yeah. So when you, when you, none of these are even remote. None of them. For those of you who don't specifically live in Canada, that kid ran about 400 miles or or 500 kilometers in and around Toronto just to escape these uh, people trying to kill him. He was long dead before they even got to them. Like it's pretty simple, but still, movies stitch it all together so that's where the canadian content comes in i think that's the beauty of film as well is you can get away you know in any capacity whether it's television or film is you can get away with so much that's like unless you know you're not gonna know yeah <laughs> and exactly. that's okay and but i'm, I'm assuming they do the same thing as yeah. stuff in the states that we would have no clue oh absolutely i mean it you know it, you, you know, know what anybody it, right? else who lives anywhere but boston if they shoot it in boston and they say it's New York. People in Boston are like, hey, what the? That's the Chrysler Building. That's not in That's not in New York. That's right in Boston. <laughs> and they, everybody does it. If you live and you know, I mean, people in Calgary have no idea that all those places are in Toronto and where they're running around. Yeah. Um, well, and in the same, especially now. I mean, in classic film, it was more of an example. But now you can 
edit anything you want into a skyline. <laughs> That's easy to make a city look like another city now. Um, it, it it's always, a little trickier before. It always <laughs> tickles me when we have something shot in Toronto that's set in Toronto. Yeah. It's always a stretch. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, like Murdoch. Murdoch yeah. is set in Toronto because that is how he says Toronto because he obviously never lived in Toronto because we all live in Toronto. Yeah. Um, however, a lot, a, the, time. A, lot of, <laughs> a lot of the locations they shoot at are not where they say they're shooting at. And I know where they shoot at because I know Toronto and shoot locations very well because of my, my job. So it's funny when I see them, I'm like, oh, they're at the Brickworks. Oh, they're at the textile plant in Hamilton. Anytime you see uh, the docks yep. or the warehouse district, yep. it's one specific building, which is a period textile plant yep. in Hamilton. Well, and, and that's tricky because you're talking about period piece now and not just fitting something into Oh, the absolutely. Floor. It's, okay, we now have to choose locations that fit the bill of 19-oh-whatever for this part of the, the, you know, there's there's so much of Toronto that's overbuilt to you can't even touch it. Well, right, there's, with yeah, camera agreed. If you're trying to make a period piece. Agreed. But if you look at something like Forever Night, which was a television show back in the 90s, that was set in Toronto as a vampire film. Was or a vampire uh, television show, sorry. Uh, and uh, there was another one called Blood Ties, which was actually written, the, the book was written by a friend of mine, um, Tanya Huff. And it was translated into a television series. It was also set in Toronto. Yeah. So it's when it's fun when you see that and you go, oh, I know where that is. I know where that is. I know where that is. That's amazing. That's cool. I like that. Um, and there are also several standing sets in Toronto. Like there is a White House, <coughs> uh, a White House exterior and an uh, Oval Office that is a standing set. Yeah. It doesn't change. Like people rent the White House for their movies. It's needed for it, – it's a pretty – universal thing to need right for certain films which brings us back to the story i was going to tell you earlier about warehouse 13 that is one of my big nerd things i'm going to flex a little bit and show you that you can flex and still be a moron at the same time (laughs) um one of the things we were doing um we were on pinewood studios lot setting up motion capture um a motion capture display and a luncheon sort of deal for uh, when Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II came to Toronto. Part of what she did was a tour at Pinewood. So there was a luncheon of which we were setting up all the you know, stage, the speakers, all the whole nine yards. That's what my responsibility was. And in the next room, they were setting up motion capture things so that Her Majesty could view and see the technology and the great strides that we're making here in Canada, um, you know, in the colonies. And just outside was this weird girder thing with a, a like a set. I can only see the back of it, but had like a set of walls and a big girder out the front. I'm like, the heck is that? And somebody says to me, you know, told me what, what they were shooting on there. And I went, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. Don't really know it at all. Um, and we'd packed up and we were leaving. And I turned to my buddy, who's as big or a bigger nerd than I am even. And I said... So, apparently, that thing across I asked about it. He goes, apparently, that was uh, uh, the front of uh, of the warehouse, something from Warehouse Thirteen, and he slammed the brakes on the car and started cursing. I'm like, what? He goes, we were right there. We could have taken a picture in front of the warehouse. We could have walked over there and done it. Oh my god! I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen the show. And he went, you've never seen what? <laughs> And we literally went home and I watched the first three episodes and I was like, no, what should we do? We're so stupid. So now I'm, I'm kicking myself and regretting it horribly. But well, and the funny thing is for a picture like that too, and, and the way that lines up continuity wise is the greatest part of the story is now I had my picture taken in front of this thing before I knew how cool it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I can also show people like, oh, you, this was my bridge. You don't know where Warehouse 13 is? I've. I've been in front of it. And they're like, oh, no. But yeah. So, but anyways, we've hit about our mark here. Yeah. Uh, so let's wrap this up. Our sometimes, book's better than the movie. Sometimes. Because <laughs> we went really off in the left field on this one. <laughs> we, we took a, a left turn at Albuquerque and kept going. I, I think this falls, uh, the, the ultimate answer to this one falls under um, my philosophy on life. 
Don't let anybody tell you your fun is wrong. <laughs> Agreed. Um, but we're also going to probably say for about 95% of things, the book is always better than the movie. Do you need to read it first? I, I myself enjoy the visual aspect of things, and so I, as much as I can imagine things, I like being able to relate something to something, uh, relate a, a written passage to something more visually tangible, and so I can go either direction on that. I really don't lose anything by seeing a movie first, because it actually helps me pull in the visuals of location and things, even though they're described out and, and kind of connect those two worlds together. I would, it, it, it will depend for me on if I already know the source material. Okay. I'll give you the Harry Potter again. I would not have wanted to watch the movies without reading the books. Yeah. And when the new book came out, I'd read it right away. So I wouldn't be influenced by reading the first three books or four books before I saw a movie. I had those characters look. I had the look of Hogwarts and everything set in my head. And then when they translated it pretty damn well yeah. onto camera, I was like, okay, I can <laughs> there like is, this. There is a bit of a discovery to that as well when you do read first and then see after. Um, because it's so interpretive, yeah, right? Um, no matter how well you write something, it's always interpretive because everybody views interpretation of different words differently and how they combine together and, and you're just a single person's experiences um, give them different visual acuities in their mind's eye, right? Um, I think there's a really special thing about reading a book first and then seeing it on screen and, and having, like you said, ah, they did really well at this. Or even the joy of having that disappointing moment of being, yeah. you know, and, and just being okay with why well, that would they crap. do this? <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, I, and again, I, it will all depend. Like, I have no, um, I've got no back love or knowledge of Ready Player One. Now I'm going to go read the book yep. to see what they did and didn't oh, it'll, do. It'll change it. Yeah, you've seen you've seen. Oh, the I've seen the movie. movie? Yes, yeah. I absolutely seen the movie first. And I guarantee you, I, I know you. You'll enjoy them as two separate things because they are two very separate things, but they tie in so. And because they're so based in nerd culture in the first place, I think that's what makes them beautiful. And that is probably why the movie had to be very very different because of licensing issues. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but they both came out beautifully perfect to me well um, spielberg wasn't it was it a spielberg i'm pretty sure it was spielberg i didn't even i wasn't even paying attention to it i just enjoyed the concept and so i jumped in uh, <laughs> all right so, and, we've so said they're, and they're they're either is released now or will be released a, a book for ready player two Oh, okay. I didn't even know there was yeah, a second there, one. Yeah, there was something i was seeing that was coming up about it i don't know if they've released it yet but that so i'm I kind of now am sitting back going, okay, I want them to make the movie first, and that way I can do both concurrently uh, and have that experience. That's kind of fun, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, so we've determined that the books are always better than movies. Everyone else is wrong. No, I'm kidding. Um, so we've... We'll graciously use we'll the graciously, word usually. <laughs> okay, we'll use the word usually. Uh, usually the books are better, but you don't need to read them specifically to enjoy the movies. And you don't need to read the source material to love or hate the movies. I think that yeah. was the same thing. I was trying to do it the other yeah. way around. And, you can and enjoy the book without the movie. You can enjoy the movie without the book. You can enjoy both. But it's not necessary to enjoy both. And I still stand by, again, my, my lifestyle choice is don't ever let anybody tell you your fun is wrong. Because you don't have to enjoy reading a book just to enjoy the content of a film. Well, that wraps it up for this topic. However, the list of topics is ever-growing. So if you have a show idea or a topic you think we should discuss, please send it to Christian at FrugalDutchman.com. Or join us on Facebook, TFDATC. That's the Frugal Dutchman at the counter. So join us once again. We're Nerdy Isn't Dirty. It's a badge of honor. For Christian, I'm Marcus. For Marcus, I'm Christian. And we'll see you... At the counter. counter.